Section 23 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 8, Chapters 5 to 9. Chapter 5. The condition and psychology of their own country, as they read about it in the Paris Daily Mail, which was first to come into their billets, filled some of these young men with distress and disgust, strengthened into rage when they went home on leave. The deliberate falsification of news, the truth of which they heard from private channels, made them discredit the whole presentation of our case and state. They said, propaganda, with a sharp note of scorn. The breezy optimism of public men, preachers, and journalists, never downcast by black news, never agonized by the slaughter in these fields, minimizing horrors and loss and misery, crowing over the enemy, prophesizing early victory which did not come, accepting all the destruction of manhood, while they stayed safe, as a necessary and inevitable misfortune, had a depressing effect on men who knew they were doomed to die, in the law of averages, if the war went on. Damn their optimism, said some of our officers. It's too easy for those behind the lines. It is only we who have the right of optimism. It's we who have to do the dirty work. They seem to think we like the job. What are they doing to bring the end nearer? The frightful suspicion entered the heads of some of our men, some of those I knew, that at home people liked the war and were not anxious to end it, and did not care a jot for the sufferings of the soldiers. Many of them came back from seven days' leave, fuming and sullen. Everybody was having a good time. Munition workers were earning wonderful wages and spending them on gramophones, pianos, furs, and the pictures. Everybody was gadding about in a state of joyous exultation. The painted flapper was making herself sick with the sweets of life after office hours in government employ, where she did little work for a lot of pocket money. The society girl was dancing barelegged for war charities, pushing into bazaars for the poor, dear wounded getting her pictures into the paper as a notable war-worker, married for the third time in three years. The middle-class cousin was driving staff officers to Whitehall, young gentlemen of the air service to Hendon, junior secretaries to their luncheons. Millions of girls were in some kind of fancy dress with buttons and shoulder-straps, breeches and puttees, and they seemed to be making a game of the war and enjoying it thoroughly. Oxford dons were harvesting, and proud of their prowess with the pitchfork, behold their patriotism, while the boys were being blown to bits on the Ezer Canal. Miners were striking for some wages. Factory hands were downing tools for fewer hours at higher pay. The government was paying any price for any labor, while Tommy Atkins drew his one and two pence and made a little go a long way in a wayside estaminet before jogging up the Menin Road to have his head blown off. The government had created a world of parasites and placemen housed in enormous hotels where they were engaged at large salaries upon mysterious unproductive labors which seemed to have no result in front-line trenches. Government contractors were growing fat on the life of war, amassing vast fortunes, juggling with excess profits, battening upon the flesh and blood of boyhood in the fighting lines. These old men, these fat men, 
were breathing out fire and fury against the hun and vowing by all their gods that they would see their last son die in the last ditch rather than agree to any peace except that of destruction there were fug committees it was lord kitchener's word at the war office the board of trade the foreign office the home office the ministry of munitions the ministry of information where officials on enormous salaries smoked cigars of costly brands and decided how to spend vast sums of public money on organization which made no difference to the man stifling his cough below the parapet in a wet fog of flanders staring across no man's land for the beginning of a german attack in all classes of people there was an epidemic of dancing jazzing card-playing theater-going they were keeping their spirits up wonderfully too well for men slouching about the streets of london on leave and wondering at all this gaiety and thinking back to the things they had seen and forward to the things they would have to do people at home it seemed were not much interested in the life of the trenches anyhow they could not understand the soldier listened to excited tales of air raids a bomb had fallen in the next street the windows had been broken many people had been killed in a house somewhere in hackney it was frightful the germans were devils they ought to be torn to pieces every one of them the soldier on leave saw crowds of people taking shelter in underground railways working men among them sturdy lads panic-stricken but for his own wife and children he had an evil sense of satisfaction in these sights it would do them good they would know what war meant just a little they would not be so easy in their damned optimism an air raid lord god did they know what a german barrage was like did they guess how men walked day after day through harassing fire to the trenches did they have any faint idea of life in a sector where men stood slept ate worked under the fire of eight-inch shells five-point-nines trench mortars rifle grenades machine-gun bullets snipers to say nothing of poison gas long-range fire on the billets in small farmsteads and on every moonlight night air raids above wooden hutments so closely crowded into a small space that hardly a bomb could fall without killing a group of men oh but you have your dugout said a careless little lady the soldier smiled it was no use talking the people did not want to hear the tragic side of things baron's father's old bill seemed to them to typify the spirit of the fighting men off mau kaiser the british soldier was gay and careless of death always shell-fire meant nothing to him if he were killed well after all what else could he expect wasn't that what he was out for the twice-married girl knew a charming boy in the air force he had made love to her even before charlie was done in these dear boys were so greedy for love she could not refuse them poor darlings of course they had all got to die for liberty and that sort of thing it was very sad a terrible thing war perhaps she had better give up dancing for a week until charlie had been put into the casualty lists what are we fighting for asked officers back from leave turning over the pages of the sketch and tattler with pictures of race meetings strike meetings bareback beauties at war bazaars and portraits of profiteers in the latest honors list are we going to die for these swine these parasites and prostitutes is this the war for noble ideals liberty christianity and civilization to hell with all this filth 
The world has gone mad, and we are the victims of insanity. Some of them said that below all that froth there were deep and quiet waters in England. They thought of the anguish of their own wives and mothers, their noble patience, their uncomplaining courage, their spiritual faith in the purpose of the war. Perhaps at the heart England was true and clean and pitiful. Perhaps, after all, many people at home were suffering more than the fighting men, in agony of spirit. It was unwise to let bitterness poison their brains. Anyhow, they had to go on. How long? How long, O oh Lord? How long is it going to last? asked the London Rangers of their chaplain. He lied to them, and said another three months. Always he had absolute knowledge that the war would end three months later. That was certain. Courage, he said. Courage to the end of the last lap. Most of the long servicemen were dead and gone long before the last lap came. It was only the new boys who went as far as victory. He asked permission of the general to withdraw nineteen of them from the line to instruct them for communion. They were among the best soldiers, and not afraid of the ridicule of their fellows because of their religious zeal. The chaplain's main purpose was to save their lives, for a while, and give them a good time and spiritual comfort. They had their good time. Three weeks later came the German attack on Arras, and they were all killed, every man of them. The chaplain, an Anglican, found it hard to reconcile Christianity with such a war as this, but he did not camouflage the teachings of the master he tried to serve. He preached to his men the gospel of love and forgiveness of enemies. It was reported to the general who sent for him. Look here, I can't let you go preaching soft stuff to my men. I can't allow all that nonsense about love. My job is to teach them to hate. You must either cooperate with me or go. The chaplain refused to change his faith or his teaching, and the general thought better of his intervention. For all chaplains it was difficult. Simple souls were bewildered by the conflict between the spirit of Christianity and the spirit of war. Many of them, officers as well as men, were blasphemous in their scorn of parson stuff, some of them frightfully ironical. A friend of mine watched two chaplains passing by. One of them was a tall man with a crown and star on his shoulder strap. I wonder, said my friend, with false simplicity, whether Jesus Christ would have been a lieutenant colonel. On the other hand, many men found help in religion, and sought its comfort with a spiritual craving. They did not argue about Christian ethics and modern warfare. Close to death in the midst of tragedy, conscious in a strange way of their own spiritual being, and of a spirituality present among masses of men above the muck of war, the stench of corruption, and fear of bodily extinction, they groped out toward God. They searched for some divine wisdom greater than the folly of the world, for a divine aid which would help them to greater courage. The Spirit of God seemed to come to them across no man's land with pity and comradeship. Catholic soldiers had a simpler, stronger faith than men of Protestant denominations, whose faith depended more on ethical arguments and intellectual reasonings. Catholic chaplains had an easier task. Leaving aside all argument, they heard the confessions of the soldiers, gave them absolution for their sins, said mass for them in wayside barns, administered the sacraments, held the cross to their lips when they fell mortally wounded, anointed them when the surgeon's knife was at work, called the names of Jesus and Mary into dying ears. There was no need of argument here. 
the old faith which has survived many wars many plagues and the old wickedness of men was still full of consolation to those who accepted it as little children and by their own agony hoped for favor from the man of sorrows who was hanged upon a cross and found a mother love in the vision of mary which came to them when they were in fear and pain and the struggle of death the padre had a deliberate job to do in the trenches and for that reason was allowed more liberty in the line than other chaplains battalion officers surgeons and nurses were patient with mysterious rites which they did not understand but which gave comfort as they saw to wounded men and the heroism with which many of these priests worked under fire careless of their own lives exalted by spiritual fervor yet for the most part human and humble and large-hearted and tolerant aroused a general admiration throughout the army many of the protestant clergy were equally devoted but they were handicapped by having to rely more upon providing physical comforts for the men than upon spiritual acts such as anointing and absolution which were accepted without question by catholic soldiers yet the catholic church certain of its faith and all other churches claiming that they teach the gospel of christ have been challenged to explain their attitude during the war and the relation of their teaching to the world tragedy the great crime which has happened it will not be easy for them to do so they will have to explain how it is that german bishops priests pastors and flocks undoubtedly sincere in their professions of faith deeply pious as our soldiers saw in cologne and fervent in their devotion to the sacraments on their side of the fighting line as the irish catholics on our side were able to reconcile this piety with their war of aggression the faith of the austrian catholics must be explained in relation to their crimes if they were criminal as we say they were in leading the way to this war by their ultimatum to serbia if christianity has no restraining influence upon the brutal instincts of those who profess and follow its faith then surely it is time the world abandoned so ineffective a creed and turned to other laws likely to have more influence on human relations that brutally is the argument of the thinking world against the clergy of all nations who all claim to be acting according to the justice of god and the spirit of christ it is a powerful argument for the simple mind rejecting causatry cuts straight to the appalling contrast between christian profession and christian practice and says here in this war there was no conflict between one faith and another but the murderous death struggle between many nations holding the same faith preaching the same gospel and claiming the same god as their protector let us seek some better truth than that hypocrisy let us if need be in honesty get back to the savage worship of national gods the juju of the tribe my own belief is that the war was no proof against the christian faith but rather is a revelation that we are as desperately in need of the spirit of christ as at any time in the history of mankind but i think the clergy of all nations apart from a heroic and saintly few subordinated their faith which is a gospel of charity to national limitations they were patriots before they were priests and their patriotism was sometimes as limited as narrow as fierce and as bloodthirsty as that of the people who looked to them for truth and light they were often fiercer narrower and more desirous of vengeance than the soldiers who fought because it is now a known truth that the soldiers 
german and austrian french and italian and british were sick of the unending slaughter long before the ending of the war and would have made a peace more fair than that which now prevails if it had been put to the common vote in the trenches whereas the archbishop of canterbury the archbishop of cologne and the clergy who spoke from many pulpits in many nations under the cross of christ still stoked up the fires of hate and urged the armies to go on fighting in the cause of justice for the defense of the fatherland for christian righteousness to the bitter end those words are painful to write but as i am writing this book for truth's sake at all costs i let them stand chapter six the entire aspect of the war was changed by the russian revolution followed by the collapse of the russian armies and the peace of brest litvotsk when for the first time the world heard the strange word bolshevism and knew not what it meant the russian armies had fought bravely in the first years of the war with the oriental disregard of death under generals in german pay betrayed by a widespread net of anarchy and corruption so villainous that arms and armaments sent out from england had to be bribed on their way from one official to another and never reached the front so foul in callousness of human life the soldiers were put into fighting line without rifle or ammunition these russian peasants flung themselves not once but many times against the finest troops of germany with no more than naked bayonets against powerful artillery and the scythe of machine-gun fire and died like sheep in the slaughterhouses of chicago is it a wonder that at the last they revolted against this immolation turned round upon their tyrants and said you are the enemy it is you that we will destroy by this new revelation they forgot their hatred of germans they said you are our brothers we have no hatred against you we do not want to kill you why should you kill us we are all of us the slaves of bloodthirsty castes who use our flesh for their ambitions do not shoot us brothers but join hands against the common tyranny which enslaves our peoples they went forward with outstretched hands and were shot down like rabbits by some germans and by others were not shot because german soldiers gaped wide-eyed at this new gospel as it seemed and said they speak words of truth why should we kill one another the german warlords ordered a forward movement threatened their own men with death if they fraternized with russians and dictated their terms of peace on the old lines of military conquest but as ludendorff has confessed and as we now know from other evidence many german soldiers were infected with bolshevism and lost their fighting spirit russia was already in anarchy constitutional government had been replaced by the soviets and by committees of soldiers and workmen krensky had fled lenin and trotsky were the marat and danton of the revolution and decreed the reign of terror tales of appalling atrocity some true some false no one can tell how true or how false came through to france and england it was certain that the whole fabric of society in russia had dissolved in the wildest anarchy the world has seen in modern times and that the bolshevik gospel of brotherhood with humanity was at least rudely interrupted by wholesale murder within its own boundaries one other thing was certain having been relieved of the russian menace germany was free to withdraw her armies on that front and use all her striking force in the west 
It should have cautioned our generals to save their men for the greatest menace that had confronted them. But without caution, they fought the battles of 1917 in Flanders, as I have told. In 1917, and in the first half of 1918, there seemed no ending to the war by military means. Even many of our generals, who had been so breezy in their optimism, believed now that the end must come by diplomatic means, a peace by understanding. I had private talks with men in high command who acknowledged that the way must be found, and the British mind prepared for negotiations, because there must come a limit to the drain of blood on each side. It was to one man in the world that many men in the armies looked for a way out of this frightful impasse. President Wilson had raised new hope among many men who otherwise were hopeless. He not only spoke high words, but defined the meanings of them. His definition of liberty seemed sound and true, promising the self-determination of peoples. His offer to the German people to deal generously with them if they withdrew their tyranny raised no quarrel among British soldiers. His hope of a new diplomacy, based upon open covenants openly arrived at, seemed to cut at the root of the old evil in Europe by which the fate of peoples had been in the hands of the few. His fourteen points set out clearly and squarely a just basis of peace. His advocacy of a League of Nations held out a vision of a new world by which the great and small democracies should be united by a common pledge to preserve peace and submit their differences to a supreme court of arbitration. Here, at last, was a leader of the world with a clear call to the nobility of men rather than to their base passions, a gospel which would raise civilization from the depths into which it had fallen, and a practical remedy for that suicidal mania which was exhausting the combatant nations. I think there were many millions of men on each side of the fighting line who thanked God because President Wilson had come with a wisdom greater than the folly which was ours to lead the way to an honorable peace and a new order of nations. I was one of them. Months passed, and there was continual fighting, continued slaughter, and no sign that ideas would prevail over force. The Germans launched their great offensive, broke through the British lines, and afterward through the French lines, and there were held in check long enough for our reserves to be flung across the channel. 300,000 boys from England and Scotland, who had been held in hand as the last counters for the pool. The American army came in tidal waves across the Atlantic, flooded our back areas, reached the edge of the battlefields, were a new guarantee of strength. Their divisions passed mostly to the French front, with them and with his own men, magnificent in courage still, and some of ours, Foch, had his army of reserve and struck. So the war ended, after all, by military force, and by military victory greater than had seemed imaginable or possible six months before. In the peace terms that followed, there was but little trace of those splendid ideas which had been proclaimed by President Wilson. On one point after another he weakened, and was beaten by the old militarism which sat enthroned in the council chamber, with its foot on the neck of the enemy. The self-determination of peoples was a hollow phrase signifying nothing. Open covenants openly arrived at were mocked by the closed doors of the conference. When at last the terms were published, their merciless severity, their disregard of racial boundaries, 
their creation of hatreds and vendettas which would lead as sure as the sun would rise to new warfare staggered humanity not only in germany and austria but in every country of the world where at least minorities of people had hoped for some nobler vision of the world's needs and for some healing remedy for the evils which had massacred its youth the league of nations which it seemed to promise so well was hedged round by limitations which made it look bleak and barren still it was peace and the rivers of blood had ceased to flow and the men were coming home again home again chapter seven the men came home in a queer mood startling to those who had not watched them out there and to those who welcomed peace with flags even before their homecoming which was delayed week after week month after month unless they were lucky young miners out for the victory push and back again quickly strange things began to happen in france and flanders egypt and palestine men who had been long patient became stubbornly impatient men who had obeyed all discipline broke into disobedience bordering on mutiny they elected spokesmen to represent their grievances like trade unionists they answered back to their officers in such large bodies with such threatening anger that it was impossible to give them field punishment number one or any other number especially as their battalion officers sympathized mainly with their point of view they demanded demobilization according to their terms of service which was for the duration of the war they protested against the gross inequalities of selection by which men of short service were sent home before those who had been out in 1914, 1915, 1916. They demanded justness, fair play, and denounced red tape and official lies. We want to go home, was their shout on parade, a serious business subversive of discipline. Similar explosions were happening in England. Bodies of men broke camp at Folkestone and other camps demonstrated before town halls demanded to speak with mayors generals any old fellows who were in authority and refused to embark for france until they had definite pledges that they would receive demobilization papers without delay whitehall the sacred portals of the war office the holy ground of the horse guards parade were invaded by bodies of men who had commandeered ambulances and lorries and had made long journeys from their depots they too demanded demobilization they refused to be drafted out for service to india egypt archangel or anywhere they had done their bit according to their contract it was for the war office to fulfill its pledges justice was the word on their lips and it was a word which put the wind up as soldiers say any staff officers and officials who had not studied the laws of justice as they concerned private soldiers and who had dealt with them after the armistice and after the peace as they had dealt with them before as numbers counters to be shifted here and there according to the needs of the high command what was this strange word justice on soldiers lips red tape squirmed and writhed about the business of demobilization orders were made communicated to the men cancelled even at the railway gates promises were made and broken conscripts were drafted off to india egypt mesopotamia archangel against their will and contrary to pledge men on far fronts years absent from their wives at home were left to stay there fever-stricken yearning for home despairing 
and while the old war was not yet cold in its grave we prepared for a new war against bolshevik russia arranging for the spending of more millions the sacrifice of more boys of ours not openly with the consent of the people but on the sly with the fine art of camouflage the purpose of the new war seemed to many men who had fought for liberty and outrage against the self-determination of peoples which had been the fundamental promise of the league of nations and a blatant hypocrisy on the part of a nation which denied self-government to ireland the ostensible object of our intervention in russia was to liberate the russian masses from the bloody tyranny of the bolsheviks but this ardor for the liberty of russia had not been manifest during the reign of tsardom and grand dukes when there were massacres of mobs in russia bloody sundays in st petersburg pogroms in riga floggings of men and girls in many prisons and when free speech liberal ideas and democratic uprisings had been smashed by cossack knout and by the torture of siberian exile anyhow many people believed that it was none of our business to suppress the russian revolution or to punish the leaders of it and it was suspected by british workingmen that the real motive behind our action was not a noble enthusiasm for liberty but an endeavor to establish a reactionary government in russia in order to crush a philosophy of life more dangerous to the old order in europe than high explosives and to get back the gold that had been poured into russia by england and france by a strange paradox of history french journalists forgetting their own revolution the cruelties of robespierre and marat the september massacres the torture of marie antoinette in the tuileries the guillotining of many fair women of france and after eighteen seventy the terrors of the commune were most horrified by the anarchy in russia and most fierce in denunciation of the bloody struggle by which a people made mad by long oppression and infernal tyrannies strove to gain the liberties of life thousands of british soldiers newly come from war in france were sullenly determined that they would not be dragged off to the new adventure they were not alone as lord rothermere pointed out a french regiment mutinied on hearing a mere unfounded report that it was being sent to the black sea the united states and japan were withdrawing only a few of our men disillusioned by the ways of peace missing the comradeship of the ranks restless purposeless not happy at home seeing no prospect of good employment said hell why not the army again an archangel or any old wear and volunteered for mr winston churchill's little war after the troubled demobilization came peace pageants and celebrations and flag wavings but all was not right with the spirit of the men who came back something was wrong they put on civilian clothes again looked to their mothers and wives very much like the young men who had gone to business in the peaceful days before august of fourteen but they had not come back the same men something had altered in them they were subject to queer moods queer tempers fits of profound depression alternating with restless desire for pleasure many of them were easily moved to passion when they lost control of themselves many were bitter in their speech violent in opinion frightening for some time while they drew their unemployment pensions they did not make any effort to get work for the future they said that can wait i've done my bit the country can keep me for a while i helped to save it let's go to the movies 
They were listless when not excited by some show. Something seemed to have snapped in them, their willpower. A quiet day at home did not appeal to them. "'Are you tired of me?' asked the young wife wistfully. "'Aren't you glad to be home?' "'It's a dull sort of life,' said some of them. The boys, unmarried, hung about street corners, searched for their pals, formed clubs where they smoked incessantly, and talked in an aimless way. They began the search for work. Boys without training looked for jobs with wages high enough to give them a margin for amusement, after the cost of living decently had been reckoned on the scale of high prices, mounting higher and higher. Not so easy as they had expected. The girls were clinging to their jobs, would not let go of the pocket money which they had spent on frocks. Employers favored girl labor, found it efficient and on the whole cheap. Young soldiers, who had been very skilled with machine guns, trench mortars, hand grenades, found that they were classed with the ranks of unskilled labor in civil life. That was not good enough. They had fought for their country. They had served England. Now they wanted good jobs with short hours and good wages. They meant to get them, and meanwhile prices were rising in the shops. Suits of clothes, boots, food, anything, were at double and treble the price of pre-war days. The profiteers were rampant. They were out to bleed the men who had been fighting. They were defrauding the public with sheer, undisguised robbery, and the government did nothing to check them. England, they thought, was rotten all the way through. Who cared for the men who had risked their lives and bore on their bodies the scars of war? The pensions doled out to blinded soldiers would not keep them alive. The consumptives, the gas, the paralyzed were forgotten in institutions where they lay hidden from the public eye. Before the war had been over six months, our heroes, our brave boys in the trenches, were without preference in the struggle for existence. Employers of labor gave them no special consideration. In many offices they were told bluntly, as I know, that they had wasted three or four years in the army and could not be of the same value as boys just out of school. The officer class was hardest hit in that way. They had gone straight from the public schools and universities to the army. They had been lieutenants, captains, and majors in the Air Force or infantry battalions or tanks or trench mortars, and they had drawn good pay, which was their pocket money. Now they were at loose end, hating the idea of office work, but ready to knuckle down to any kind of decent job with some prospect ahead. What kind of job? What knowledge had they of use in civil life? None. They scanned advertisements, answered likely invitations, were turned down by elderly men who said, I've had two hundred applications, and none of you young gentlemen from the army are fit to be my office boy. They were the same elderly men who had said, We'll fight the last ditch. If I had six sons, I would sacrifice them all in the cause of liberty and justice. Elderly officers who had lost their businesses for their country's sake, who with a noble devotion had given up everything to do their bit, paced the streets searching for work, and were shown out of every office where they applied for a post. I know one officer of good family and distinguished service who hawked round a subscription book to private houses. It took him more courage than he had needed under shell-fire to ring the bell and ask to see the lady of the house. 
He thanked God every time the maid handed back his card and said, Not at home. On the first week's work, he was four pounds out of pocket. Here and there an elderly officer blew out his brains. Another sucked a rubber tube fastened to a gas jet. It would have been better if they had fallen on the field of honor. Where was the nation's gratitude for men who had fought and died, or fought and lived? Was it for this reward and peace that nearly a million of our men gave up their lives? That question is not my question. It is the question that was asked by millions of men in England in the months that followed the armistice, and it was answered in their own brains by a bitterness and indignation out of which may be lit the fires of the revolutionary spirit. At street corners, in tramway cars, in tea shops where young men talked at the table next to mine, I listened to conversations not meant for my ears, which made me hear in imagination, afar off, yet not very far, perhaps, the dreadful rumble of revolution, the violence of mobs led by fanatics. It was the talk mostly of demobilized soldiers. They asked one another, what did we fight for? And when other questions such as, wasn't this a war for liberty, or we fought for the land, didn't we? Then why shouldn't we share the land? Or why should we be bled white by profiteers? They mentioned the government, and they laughed in a scornful way. The government, said one man, is a conspiracy against the people. All its power is used to protect those who grow fat on big jobs, big trusts, big contracts. It used us to smash the German Empire in order to strengthen the, and enlarge the British Empire for the sake of those who grabbed the oil wells, the gold fields, the minerals, and the markets of the world. Chapter 8 out of such talk revolution is born, and revolution will not be averted by pretending that such words are not being spoken, and that such thoughts are not seething among our working classes. It will only be averted by cutting at the root of public suspicion, by cleansing our political state of its corruption and folly, and by a clear, strong call of noble-minded men to a new way of life in which a great people, believing in the honor and honesty of its leadership, and in fair reward for good labor, shall face a period of poverty with courage, and cooperate unselfishly for the good of the commonwealth, inspired by a sense of fellowship with workers of other nations. We have a long way to go, and many storms to weather before we reach that state, if, by any grace that is in us, and above us, we reach it. For there are disease and insanity in our present state, due to the travail of the war and the education of the war. The daily newspapers for many months have been filled with a record of dreadful crimes, of violence and passion. Most of them have been done by soldiers or ex-soldiers. The attack on the police station at Epson, the destruction of the town hall at Luton, revealed a brutality of passion, a murderous instinct, which had been manifested again and again in other riots and street rows and solitary crimes. Those last are the worst because they are not inspired by a sense of injustice, however false, or any mob passion, but by homicidal mania and secret lust. The many murders of young women, the outrages upon little girls, the violent robberies that have happened since the demobilizing of the armies have appalled decent-minded people. They cannot understand the cause of this epidemic after a period when there was less crime than usual. 
the cause is easy to understand it is caused by the discipline and training of modern warfare our armies as in all armies established an intensive culture of brutality they were schools of slaughter it was the duty of officers like colonel ronald campbell o c bayonets a delightful man to inspire bloodlust in the brains of gentle boys who instinctively disliked butcher's work by an ingenious system of psychology he played upon their nature calling out the primitive barbarism which has been overlaid by civilized restraints liberating the brute which has been long chained up by law and the social code of gentle life but lurks always in the secret lairs of the human heart it is difficult when the brute has been unchained for the purpose of killing germans to get it into the collar again with the cry of down dog down generals as i have told were against the soft stuff preached by parsons who were not quite militarized though army chaplains they demanded the gospel of hate not that of love but hate when it dominates the psychology of men is not restricted to one objective such as a body of men behind barbed wire it is a spreading poison it envenoms the whole mind like jealousy it is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on our men living in holes in the earth like ape-men were taught the ancient code of the jungle law to track down human beasts in no man's land to jump upon their bodies in the trenches to kill quickly silently in a raid to drop a hand grenade down a dugout crowded with men blowing their bodies to bits to lie patiently for hours in a shell hole for a sniping shot at any head which showed to bludgeon their enemy to death or spit him on a bit of steel to get at his throat if need be with nails and teeth the code of the ape-man is bad for some temperaments it is apt to become a habit of mind it may surge up again when there are no germans present but some old woman behind an open till or some policeman with a bull's-eye's lantern and a truncheon or in a street riot where fellow citizens are for the time being the enemy death their own or other people's does not mean very much to some who in the trenches sat within a few yards of stinking corpses knowing that the next shell might make such of them life was cheap in war is it not cheap in peace the discipline of military life is mainly an imposed discipline mechanical and enforced in the last resort not by reason but by field punishment or by a firing platoon whereas many men were made brisk and alert by discipline and saw the need for it for the general good others were always in secret rebellion against its restraints of the individual will and as soon as they were liberated broke away from it as slaves from their chains and did not substitute self-discipline for that which had weighed heavy upon them with all its discipline army life was full of lounging hanging about waste of time waiting for things to happen it was an irresponsible life for the rank and file food was brought to them clothes were given to them entertainments were provided behind the line sports organized their day ordered by high powers there was no need to think for themselves to act for themselves they moved in herds dependent on their leaders that too was a bad training for the individualism of civil life it tended to destroy personal initiative and will-power 
another evil of the abnormal life of war sowed the seeds of insanity in the brains of men not strong enough to resist it sexually they were starved for months they lived out of the sight and presence of women but they came back into villages or towns where they were tempted by any poor slut who winked at them and infected them with illness men went to hospital with venereal disease in appalling numbers boys were ruined and poisoned for life future generations will pay the price of war not only in poverty and by the loss of the unborn children of the boys who died but by an enfeebled stock and the heritage of insanity the prime minister said one day the world is suffering from shell shock that was true but it suffered also from the symptoms of all that illness which comes from syphilis whose breeding ground is war the majority of our men were clean living and clean-hearted fellows who struggled to come unscathed in soul from most of the horrors of war they resisted the education of brutality and were not envenomed by the gospel of hate out of the dark depths of their experience they looked up to the light and had visions of some better law of life than that which led to the world tragedy it would be a foul libel on many of them to besmirch their honor by a general accusation of lowered morality and brutal tendencies something in the spirit of our race and in the quality of our home life kept great numbers of them sound chivalrous generous-hearted in spite of the frightful influence of degradation bearing down upon them out of the conditions of modern warfare but the weak men the vicious the murderous the primitive were overwhelmed by these influences and all that was base in them was intensified and their passions were unleashed with what result we have seen and shall see to our sorrow and the nation's peril the nation was in a great peril after this war and that peril will not pass in our lifetime except by heroic remedies we won victory in the field and at the cost of our own ruin we smashed germany and austria and turkey but the structure of our own wealth and industry was shattered and the very foundations of our power were shaken and sapped nine months after the armistice great britain was spending at the rate of two million pounds a day in excess of their revenue she was burdened with a national debt which had risen from six hundred forty five millions in nineteen fourteen to seven thousand eight hundred millions in nineteen nineteen the pre-war expenditure of two hundred million pounds per annum on the navy army and civil service pensions and interest on national debt had risen to seven hundred fifty millions our exports were dwindling down owing to decreased output so that foreign exchanges were rising against us and the american dollar was increasing in value as our proud old sovereign was losing its ancient standard so that for all imports from the united states we were paying higher prices which rose every time the rate of exchange dropped against us the slaughter of nine hundred thousand men of ours the disablement of many more than that had depleted our ranks of labor and there was a paralysis of all our industry owing to the dislocation of its machinery for purposes of war the soaring cost of raw material the crippling effect of high taxation the rise in wages to meet high prices and the lethargy of the workers ruin immense engulfing annihilating to our strength as a nation and as an empire stares us brutally in the eyes at the time i write this book and i find no consolation in the thought that other nations in europe including the german people 
are in the same desperate plight or worse chapter nine the nation so far has not found a remedy for the evil that has overtaken us rather in a kind of madness that is not without a strange splendor like a ship that goes down with drums beating and banners flying we are racing toward the rocks at this time when we are sorely stricken and in dire poverty and debt we have extended the responsibilities of empire and of world power as though we had illimitable wealth our sphere of influence includes persia tibet arabia palestine egypt a vast part of the mohammedan world yet if any part of our possessions were to break into revolt or raise a holy war against us we should be hard-pressed for men to uphold our power and prestige and our treasury would be called upon in vain for gold after the war which was to crush militarism the air force alone proposed an annual expenditure of more than twice as much money as the whole cost of the army before the war while the armaments of the german people whom we defeated in the war against militarism are restricted to a few warships and a navy of a hundred thousand men at a cost reckoned as ten million pounds a year we are threatened with a naval and military program costing three hundred million pounds a year was it for this our men fought was it to establish a new imperialism upheld by the power of guns that nine hundred thousand boys of ours died in the war of liberation i know it was otherwise there are people at the street corners who know and in the tram cars and factories and little houses and mean streets where there are empty chairs and the portraits of dead boys it will go hard with the government of england if it plays a grandiose drama before hostile spectators who refuse to take part in it it will go hard with the nation for it will be engulfed in anarchy at the present time in this august of nineteen nineteen when i write these words five years after another august this england of ours this england which i love because its history is in my soul and its blood is in my body and i have seen the glory of its spirit is sick nigh unto death only great physicians may heal it and its old vitality struggling against disease and its old sanity against insanity our empire is greater now in spaciousness than ever before but our strength to hold it has ebbed low because of much death and a strain too long endured and strangling debts the workman is tired and has slackened in his work in this scheme of life he desires more luxury than our poverty affords he wants higher wages shorter hours and less output reasonable desires in our state before the war unreasonable now because the cost of the war has put them beyond human possibility he wants low prices with high wages and less work it is a false arithmetic and its falsity will be proved by a tremendous crash some crash must come tragic and shocking to our social structure i see no escape from that and only the hope that in that crisis the very shock of it will restore the mental balance of the nation and that all classes will combine under leaders of unselfish purpose and fine vision eager for evolution and not revolution for peace and not for blood for christian charity and not for hatred for civilization and not for anarchy to reshape the conditions of our social life and give us a new working order with more equality of labor and reward 
duty and sacrifice liberty and discipline of the soul combining the virtue of patriotism with a generous spirit to other peoples across the old frontiers of hate that is the hope but not the certainty it is only by that hope that one may look back upon the war with anything but despair all the lives of those boys whom i saw go marching up the roads of france and flanders to the fields of death so splendid so lovely in their youth will have been laid down in vain if by their sacrifice the world is not uplifted to some plane a little higher than the barbarity which was let loose in europe they will have been betrayed if the agony they suffered is forgotten and the war to end war leads to preparations for new more monstrous conflict or is war the law of human life is there something more powerful than kaisers and castes which drives masses of men against other masses in death struggles which they do not understand are we really poor beasts in the jungle striving by tooth and claw high velocity and poison gas for the survival of the fittest in an endless conflict if that is so then god mocks at us or rather if that is so there is no god such as we men may love with love for men the world will not accept that message of despair and millions of men today who went through the agony of the war are inspired by the humble belief that humanity may be cured of its cruelty and stupidity and that a brotherhood of peoples more powerful than a league of nations may be founded in the world after its present sickness and out of the conflict of its anarchy that is the new vision which leads men on and if we can make one step that way it will be better than the backward fall which civilization took when germany played the devil and led us all into the jungle the devil in germany had to be killed there was no other way except by helping the germans to kill it before it mastered them now let us exorcise our own devils and get back to kindness toward all men of good will that also is the only way to heal the heart of the world and our own state let us seek the beauty of life and god's truth somehow remembering the boys who died too soon and all the falsity and hatred of these past five years by blood and passion there will be no healing we have seen too much blood we want to wipe it out of our eyes and souls let us have peace end of section twenty three end of now it can be told by philip gibbs Recording by Walt Allen, Falmouth, Maine. See my web page for the book at tinyurl.com slash philipgibbs.